Hark! It's an 87th Precinct mini-episode. This is Paul here with a little something to keep things ticking over before we reach our next book, which, if you're listening to this in podcast order, will be the 33rd book in the series, 1979's Calypso. Before we get stuck into this episode, though, I'll give you the usual plea for reviews. If you listen on Apple Podcasts particularly, please take the time to give us a review. It helps our profile and enables us to reach many more people. You can also find us in most podcast places, including Podchaser. And if you feel impelled to contribute to the show financially, please visit coffee.com, ko-fi.com, slash hark87podcast and buy us a digital coffee. And that'll help us to meet the few costs that we have for running the project. So whilst I was thinking about what to do for this episode, I put out a little call for suggestions on our Twitter feed, which is twitter.com slash hark87podcast. And our friend Matthew Sullivan gave us a couple of good suggestions. And so what I'm going to run down for you is the history of Evan Hunter's various pseudonyms. I've got some interview extracts from the man himself to drop in here and there. And some of this is extracted from the research I've been doing for the 87th Precinct book I'm trying to write at the moment. So let's go back to the beginning. Slip on your time trousers and set the temporal controls for 15th of October 1926 and the spatial coordinates for East 120th Street, New York, Italian Harlem. That little bundle wrapped up on the kitchen table is Salvatore Albert Lombino, son of Charles and Marie Lombino. The family have decided to name him in honour of his paternal grandfather, Salvatore, who'd come to New York from Italy in 1897. Baby Salvatore's father, Charles, was actually born Carmelo Lombino, named after his grandfather, so it's clearly a tradition in the family to reuse a name in tribute. So much so, in fact, that there were two baby Salvatore Lombinos, as one of his cousins was named for their grandfather as well. But despite his Italian name and his Italian heritage, young Sal was brought up as an American. In fact, he had it drummed into him by his mother, and he reflected on it in an interview on BBC Radio in 1998. She would not have Italian spoken in our house, in our apartment, our house where we lived, you know. Her constant refrain was, I'm American, don't forget. I'm American, don't forget. I was born here. I'm American. But he grew up as Sal Lombino and was subject to the various prejudices and attitudes towards people of Italian heritage, presumably some overt name-calling, but more obviously, he just felt a sense that his name and background made him stand out when he didn't want to, or need to, even though Sal Lombino was hardly the most ostentatiously Italian of Italian names. From that BBC interview again. I I was never very comfortable with it. In the Navy, or whenever they were doing a roll call, uh, they always stumbled on the name. It's it's not a name like Garofoli Giambaglio or whatever that's difficult to pronounce. It, It seemed to me very easy, but they always stumbled on it. When I when I began working for a literary agency, We'd get calls from editors who would say, let me talk to that Italian guy up there. I wasn't an Italian guy. I was born in America. And so were my parents. That clip then takes us up to 1951. Through school, high school, the Navy, college, as a teacher, a AAA telephone operator, a lobster salesman, 
he stayed as Sal Lombino. And it was Sal Lombino who answered and applied for an ad for an editor at the Scott Meredith Literary Agency. A couple of months into his tenure at Scott Meredith, he started bringing in his own work, and it started to get sold to the sci-fi and western pulp magazines under the name S.A. Lombino, which was the form he used for his name when he was writing for school and college papers and the like. His first bit of TV work, which was the episode of Tales of Tomorrow, called Appointment on Mars, appeared under that name too in 1952. And if you have a look back through our podcast listings, you'll find a special episode all about that. Around this time, though, he began using pseudonyms. Some of those were going to become much more famous than his own birth name, and there's at least one which became the defining name by which he's known to most readers. So why did he begin to use other names? I was writing various stories under my own name and, and showing them to editors, and they would say, oh, that's that kid who works up at Scott Meredith, and rejecting them. So I began putting pseudonyms on them, and they began buying them. I would sometimes have as many as five stories in a magazine. And the editor didn't know they were all by me. In a single edition of a magazine, I would have five stories. He's exaggerating slightly here. The September and December issues of Manhunt magazine in 1953 and the July 1954 edition each contained three stories from the author under different names, and that's the most he ever had published at any one time. Pseudonyms are really handy if you try to sell stories to different magazines in different styles. Some author names just seem to suit a western better than a sci-fi story, say, or better than a crime fiction story. So let's get on to pseudonym number one. The first new name Sal Lombino used was Hunt Collins, which is interesting as it clearly gives an indication of things to come, with the very active-sounding word Hunt soon to become part of his surname as well. Under the Collins name, he produced two novels and over 20 short stories between 1951 and 1967, and they're in a wide variety of styles. Funnily enough, although he famously denied the popularly thought origin of the Evan Hunter surname, more on that in a second, he did confirm that Hunt, in this case, was derived from Hunter College, where he studied after leaving the Navy in the mid to late 40s. And my favourite Hunt Collins story title is Don't Monkey With Murder, from 1953. And so we arrive at the big change for Sal Lombino. The name Evan Hunter first appeared on the 1952 children's book Find the Feathered Serpent. We recently did an episode about that as well. And over the years, he was asked so many times where it came from. The question occurred to the writer, publisher and owner of the mysterious bookshop, Otto Penzler, years later. And he told me about this when I interviewed him a couple of years ago. I have to preface it by saying that Evan and I became extremely close friends over time. But it didn't start that way. I was in the process of writing a book called The Encyclopedia of Mystery and Detection. It was, in fact, an encyclopedia about every author, every important author, movies, books, characters, everything about the mystery world. It was the first big general reference book that McGraw-Hill ever published. And it won an Edgar, so it was a very good book. 
the process of making sure that everything was right involved me writing to every living writer uh, I wrote to Evan Hunter. And he was very sensitive about his name. He was born Salvatore Lambino, who was a very Italian name. And there was a great deal of prejudice about Italians in America when he was young, when he was born. And he changed his name legally to Evan Hunter. And what I wrote in the encyclopedia was that he had changed his name to Evan Hunter because he had gone to Evander Childs High School and Hunter College. And he wrote back and said, that's not true. If you run that, I'll sue you. So I wrote back and said, well, I've read this in several places and other people have told me that. If it's not, if that isn't how you came up with this name, please tell me and I'll use that. It would be, I want to get the record straight. He said, I don't need to tell you about it. If you run it, I'll sue you. I said, well, I'm running it. So why did he pick Evan Hunter if not for Evander Childs and Hunter College? Lawrence Block certainly thought that was the origin of the pseudonym, and it is still a pseudonym at this point. But usually Evan Hunter would simply dismiss the question that it was just a name, or it'd explain it like this. Firstly, in a quick clip from his appearance on Desert Island Discs in 1979, and then in a bit more detail from an interview with Don Swain on the show BookBeat. That came out of the blue, it really did. And I liked the name, and it, and it sort of had a good ring to it, and I put it on the first novel. I thought Hunter suited a, a young man who was ambitious and searching for the Holy Grail. And the Evan, uh, when I was working at a literary agency, there was a young man there who did some work for the agent, and he was very bright and handsome and intelligent guy, and I thought, gee, that's a nice name, a nice guy and a nice name, and I like it. And from this day forward, it is mine. After Find the Feathered Serpent and The Evil Sleep appeared under the Hunter alias, Lombino and his agent were trying to sell his story, Don't Crowd Me, to Charlie Heckelman of the popular library publishers. It was he who gave away the game to Lombino and triggered a significant decision. Once Heckelman had discovered who wrote the Evan Hunter manuscript he'd received, he took Lombino to lunch and the author made a suggestion. Why don't we publish it as... uh... S.A. Lombino was the name I used to use in college. And there was a long silence. And he said, well, he said, look, it's your book. You can put whatever name on it you want to. He said, but I'll tell you something. Evan Hunter will sell a lot more tickets. And I thought, oh, is that what it's about? That's what America's about? And two weeks later, I went out to change my name. Changing his name was a decisive step. It wasn't mere vanity. Anyone could simply decide they wanted to use a different name other than their given one. But Salvatore Lombino wanted to go the whole hog. A legal change in May of 1952 in the courts of downtown New York was a more formal affair. He wouldn't be S.A. Lombino on the bills he received and Evan Hunter on the book covers. He would now be Evan Hunter in every aspect of his life. This meant that his family would now be hunters too. His wife Anita and their son Ted changed their names and the twins, Mark and Richard, would never know any other surname. The next link in the pseudonym chain is Richard Marston, which appears in 1953 and is used on 30 short stories and novels. 
It was effectively retired in 1959 with the novel Big Man, appearing only once more on a story in the 60s. But according to the McBain brief, the name came from an amalgam of his son's names, Richard, Mark and Ted. Next, we have a one-shot deal, D.A. Adams, which was used for the story Forest of the Night in the March 1953 edition of Amazing Stories. The opening line is, Greg Nugent leaned on the bar in the space club, which tells you all you need to know about that story. Then we have another single-use name, Ted Tane, which was used for his novelette Woman's World, which is about some tall women. And then we get to the big one. In 1956, a new name entered the equation, Ed McBain. Having been asked to write three books in a new series, which were to become the opening tales of the 87th Precinct saga, Evan Hunter, now his legal name, not a pseudonym, decided to come up with another name, ostensibly to distance his more literary works from the crime stories he'd be delivering. He picked the name, seemingly at random, after completing work on Cop Hater, The intention was to keep it a secret and to let the identity of Ed McBain remain enigmatic, the mystery author, a mystery himself. And the ruse worked for a while. It was a very closely kept secret for a long while, I would guess for about 10 years. No one really knew that I was Ed McBain except my publishers and my agent. At the time, it was thought best if, if I separated my underhanded mystery writing from uh, the serious Evan Hunter novels. There is a suggestion from the author elsewhere that the notion of Bane, B-A-N-E, a poison or a thing that causes distress, might have factored into choosing the name. But generally it's supposed that it just sounded enough like Ed McBain might be perhaps an ex-cop or a journalist turning their hand to literature. So he didn't use an existing pseudonym as it was a new series of novels and it was to help keep their identity in the marketplace distinct. He might have thought that the secret was kept for many years, The photos and the blurbs on the books were playing up to that fact, but actually it was revealed officially in 1959 when Anthony Bauscher mentioned in the introduction to an omnibus edition of the first three books that Evan Hunter was Ed McBain. Unofficially, it had been revealed in the books column of the New York Times back in 1958, and if you search hard enough, you'll even find a reference to the adaptations of the first two books as movies in Variety, which revealed in a totally garbled and back-to-front way that, quote, Ed McBain now calls himself Evans Hunter, end quote. Despite the high profile of the McBain name, Hunter did keep coming up with new pseudonyms for a while at least. Kurt Cannon was the name he used when his private eye character from 1958, Matt Cordell, was renamed so that the author and protagonist were apparently one and the same. Then we have John Abbott, happily spelled with two B's and two T's, like my name is, which was used for a sequence of short stories in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine between 1969 and 1981, before it vanished only to reappear as a one-off used for the novel Scimitar in 1992. The next one was Ezra Hannon, which was used once for the 1975 novel Doors, although it was also used as a character name by Stephen King in his story The Night Flyer. And so, 
that's that. No more pseudonyms for Evan Hunter. Just a lifetime of being asked about what his name really was and why he changed it. I suppose the only other name-based question that he sometimes got asked was, were you Dean Hudson? And that, dear listeners, is another question for another time. It's probably better if you make up your own minds on that matter. But in the meantime, I hope you've enjoyed this quick rundown of the Lombino Hunter pseudonyms. Have you read any of these more obscure works? Are you the world's biggest Ted Tane fan? Have you got a poster of the mysterious Ezra Hannon on your wall? Let us know at Facebook, Twitter or Instagram by searching for Hark87 Podcast and joining in the discussions. So until we return with the main episodes, thanks for listening and fare thee well. <laughs>